Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff Braun. And this week, it's just me. Brett McGarry has a week off. He's feeling a little under the weather, but he'll be back next week. So this week, we'll take a look at the highlights of one of the greatest directors of all time. But first, he's got a new movie out this weekend, which I've already seen. So we'll start with the review. I'm talking about Steven Spielberg, who's remade a classic movie musical with West Side Story. It's happening tonight. I want the West Side locked down. I never seen you before. You keep away from my sister. We need you if we're going to war. Tony, I am scared. There won't be any fight. Do you want to start World War Three? Stand with us. West Side Story, rated PG-13, only in theaters. West Side Story stars Ansel Elgort and newcomer Rachel Zegler as the young star-crossed lovers in this remake of the Broadway musical. And I think technically it is a screen adaptation of the stage play from the late great Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein, more than a remake of the movie from 1961. Full disclosure, I've not seen either the old movie or the Broadway play, so it was nice to have this be 100% fresh uh, for me, but I, you know, I can't compare it to either of those previous versions. We'll come around back to that in a bit. This notion of remaking uh, classic movies. I can confidently report, though, that Steven Spielberg has a future in filmmaking. The man knows how to put a movie together. Musicals aren't really my thing, but I got very into West Side Story when I was watching it. I was swept up in the story, the romance, and the visual and musical feast that Spielberg dishes up here. The story's pretty simple. In New York, in the late 1950s, on the West Side, I guess. There's a crumbling neighborhood that's about to be gentrified, but the poor people who live there now think of it as home, of course. There are the two groups there, the white people and the Puerto Rican people, and among the youth, there are two gangs, the Jets, they're the white kids who look like greasers from the Outsiders, and the Sharks, they're the Puerto Rican gang. And they don't like each other, and they fight a lot, and the cops are always breaking it up. Now... Enter Tony, he's a Jet, and Maria, who's the sister of the leader of the Sharks. They meet at a dance, they fall in love, and even though they're from opposite sides, they cannot help but uh, be attracted to each other. It's very Romeo and Juliet in that way. Their romance sets off a new round of conflict between the two gangs with dire consequences, and that's pretty much it. Musicals often have pretty simple stories, but even though it is simple, it is a solid story, and I found it very effective, and in this case, incredibly well told acted and produced it's Spielberg's first musical and as it turns out the things that are his strengths are also the things that you need for a well-made musical he and his longtime cinematographer Janusz Kaminski are so good at composing their shots filling the shots and directing your eye where it should go and having things cut together in a way that is you know kinetic and logical the style is made for musicals where you have a lot of people moving and dancing so Spielberg's spatial awareness has always been a strength and you know he'll make an action scene and you never question where in the setting you are or where things are it's laid out so it makes sense in your brain without you even realizing it so you can focus on the story there again that's something you need with a bunch of singing and dancing going on uh, involving a couple of dozen people all at once kind of thing you know musicals are big and lavish and this heightened version of reality and Spielberg's obviously no stranger to that he's the best blockbuster filmmaker of all time it's such a good match between the director and genre that now in hindsight it's kind of 
kind of baffling that he hasn't done one of these before. Sure, he shot some scenes that kind of fit the bill, like there's that opening scene at the nightclub in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That's choreographed to music as Indy gets in a fight with the Japanese gangsters. And speaking of choreography, I'm by no means an expert on this subject, but the dancing in West Side Story is electric and hypnotic, and I don't know if it's the 50 setting of the story or what, but it seems like it harkens back to old movie musicals, classic stuff, and just A-plus work from everyone involved. The acting is great all around, I would say. I think if there is a drawback, and I'm not saying that there is, but I've seen some reaction that seems like not everyone was a big fan of Ansel Elgort. I thought I thought he was great. He has a, a weird energy at times in this, but I found that interesting. And again, since it is a musical and has that heightened reality, I can you know sort of get on board with a little weirdness on that front. Supporting actors like Ariana DeBose as the sister Anita, David Alvarez as Bernardo, and Mike Faced as Riff all give great performances. I think some of these people were cast primarily for their dancing rather than their acting, but Spielberg's found a cast that could do all of it. And Rita Moreno is in it. She was in the original movie in the Anita role, and here she's, you know, obviously 60 years older, but her presence is a fun tip of the hat to the original movie. And I would say it's Rachel Zegler, though, that impressed me the most. Uh, she plays Maria, and it's the lead role of the two lead roles, the boy and girl role. She's the lead girl role. She has a beautiful voice, and I imagine was probably a little nervous taking on the iconic Natalie Wood role from the first movie, and I look forward to seeing her in uh, future projects. Her IMDb says this was basically her first big movie, but she's already lined up to play Snow White in what I presume is a live-action remake set to come out in a couple of years. The one drawback to West Side Story is that it's over two and a half hours long, and I feel like a broken record complaining about long movies but like my god why would a simple straightforward musical need to be that long that said it flew by and while there was stuff in it that could easily have been cut and going in knowing it was two and a half hours long I was looking for stuff that they could easily cut but there wasn't anything in it that I didn't like I'm glad I saw all of it so I, I guess I don't really have a problem with the two and a half hours in this case but I don't understand why every movie has to be so freaking long these days. It's just insane to me. Uh, there's a couple other notable aspects to this movie. Spielberg went out of his way to hire uh, Latinx actors for all the Latinx roles, and that shouldn't really be a big deal, but in Hollywood it still is a big deal. And guess what? They all do a great job, even if they're not household names here. There's some Spanish talk in the movie as well, and Spielberg doesn't subtitle it, so maybe there's some bonus dialogue there if you do speak Spanish. It's not much, and it's usually sandwiched in between English sentences and often the character will just repeat what they said in Spanish again in English and the rest of the time you will easily follow what they're saying just from the context of the conversation and you might just realize like I did that I understand a little more Spanish than I thought I did. At any rate I thought that was an interesting uh, stylistic choice. Now let's get back to the fact that Spielberg chose to make this movie in the first place. I've long been of the mindset that there's no need to remake classic movies, just leave them be and find something new to make, or, you know, maybe you remake a bad movie, make it a good movie. I... Whenever that question comes up, I always mention The Sixth Day, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he uh, becomes a clone of himself. It's it's a great premise. It's not a great execution of that premise. It would be a much better movie with someone other than Arnold Schwarzenegger in it probably, or if it was just made in modern times because it's just got some 90s stuff in it that doesn't track well anymore. Uh, remake The Sixth Day, Hollywood. If you're looking for a movie to remake, that's a great premise for a movie. So... 
most of the time I'm right when I'm say don't remake these classic movies. This is one I think of the very few exceptions, and I think it helps that the original is actually 60 years old. That's a long time. It's not like when they remake movies from the 80s and 90s that are still much fresher in our brains. And there's also the fact that, you know, exactly how classic is the old West Side story. I know it is a big deal, but I know it's not as big a deal as things like Casablanca, The Godfather, Gone with the Wind, or Citizen Kane, right? So, again, technically, this is a remake of the Broadway play, not the movie. It's like when the Coen brothers made True uh, True Grit in 2010. That was an adaptation of the novel, not the old John Wayne movie, although it did pay homage to that as well. And, of course, there's the fact that with people like the Coen brothers and Steven Spielberg, you're talking about absolute masters of their craft, and we extend to them the benefit of the doubt. Of course, you know, the Coens also remade The Lady Killers. That was a movie they remade, and that's widely seen as their least successful film. So even for the masters of their craft like the Coen brothers, it doesn't always pan out. So it was, at least to some degree, a bit of a gamble for Spielberg to dive into these waters. And I'm just thrilled to say that it paid off big time. Four and a half couch cushions out of five for West Side Story. Uh, if you can get to a theater to see it and you don't have a problem going to a theater right now, I would highly recommend seeing this on the big screen with the big sound. It's uh, it's quite a trip to the theater. It was well, well worth it. And uh, again, the two and a half hours go by very, very quickly. So that's the review of West Side Story. When we come back, we will go into the top 10 Spielberg movies of all time. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. Brett McGarry is off this week. He'll be back next week. We're talking about Steven Spielberg today and his latest West Side Stories, probably his best film in 15 years. I just reviewed it in our last segment. Gave it four and a half couch cushions out of five. It's a triumph across the board, and to see a master return to form is always a thrill. And to celebrate, I thought, why don't we take a look back at some of Spielberg's greatest hits? I've compiled a top 10 list, and I'm not putting West Side Story on this list today only because it is so recent and I just spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about it. This list will run backwards chronologically, although number one is actually number one in my books and you can probably already guess what it is, but we'll go from most recent to most in the past. And at first, at number 10 on the list is 2015's Bridge of Spies. We are engaged in a war. This war involves information. The Soviets got our spy pilot. They got their spy. We want you to negotiate the swap. I'm an insurance lawyer. You work for the CIA now. There's a cost to these things. We do this for us. We're in a battle for civilization. Nobody is safe. Next mistake our countries make could be the last one. Bridge of Spies. Rated PG-13. October 16th. Tom Hanks stars as a lawyer in this one, a lawyer who has to defend a communist spy at the height of the Cold War in 1960. He eventually has to travel to East Berlin to try to trade this captured spy for an American pilot who had to eject behind enemy lines. It's all very tense, and somehow these guys, with a screenwriting assist from the Coen brothers and a supporting role knockout performance from Mark Rylance as the spy, make the bureaucratic and diplomatic shenanigans just sing. Tom Hanks, of course, is the exact guy you want for something like this because, I mean, how many times has he made something that on the face of it doesn't seem like much of a role become a really memorable performance? Uh, The worst part of the movie Bridge of Spies is the title Bridge of Spies. That actually stopped me from seeing it in theaters at first. Every now and then, you know, we're reminded not to judge a book by its cover, but 
bad title. And I know we talked about it last week when we were talking about Creed and the Rylance performance is just terrific in this and it was justly deserving of the Academy Award he won for it, but I do wish it had not come at the expense of still of Sylvester Stallone's return as Rocky and Creed. It's also a weird feeling, you know, to feel sorry for someone like Sylvester Stallone, who surely has no real complaints in life. But there you go. I felt bad for the guy that he didn't win for Creed. But again, Mark Rylance is so good in Bridge of Spies that you got to give it to him. Next on my list, and actually not too far from Berlin, is Munich. It's strange. To think of oneself as an assassin. Think of yourself as something else, then. What's wrong? It should have exploded by now. We found three more names for you. You know how many laws we've broken? He takes up the phone. We hit the remote. Hello? Hello? We're supposed to be righteous. I lose that. That's that's my soul. Dear Papa, don't forget my voice. You think you can outrun your fears, your doubts? In Munich, Israeli spies track down the men who killed Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. It's, of course, based on a true story. It's a knockout spy thriller that, had he made it in the 1980s, probably would have been much more of a James Bondy thing than this turned out to be, even though Daniel Craig is one of the co-stars. Instead, by 2005, Spielberg had some really good movies with very heavy subject matter under his belt, and he was comfortable digging a little deeper into the souls of men than he had been in a lot of his you know, big blockbusters. Munich is the best of both worlds. Spielberg had really developed the muscle that adds humanity to scenes where many other movies wouldn't even bother, like the scene with the payphone and the apartment bomb and the family leaving and coming back. Just masterful stuff that keeps you on the edge of your seat. And what a cast. Besides Daniel Craig, there's Eric Bana in his finest performance, and I think it was the first time I'd seen Kieran Hines in anything. He's always great. I haven't seen Munich in many years, and I think it's time to rectify that over the holidays. I'll have some time. I've got to recheck in with Munich. Next on my list, it's Hanks again. He teams up with Leo this time in Spielberg for the delightful Catch Me If You Can. Frank Abagnale Jr. had a life any man would envy. I'm a pilot. I'm a doctor. I'm getting back into law. The only problem was... Special Agent Henry, FBI. None of it was true. Your son is fudging checks. Just tell me how much yours and I'll pay you back. $1.3 million. Leonardo DiCaprio. I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> Tom Hanks. I love my job. In a film by Steven Spielberg. Hey! Catch Me If You Can, rated PG-13. Starts everywhere Christmas Day. This movie is just plain fun. Leonardo DiCaprio plays Frank Abagnale Jr., a young man who becomes a world-class con artist, and Tom Hanks plays the FBI agent who's trying to catch him. Christopher Walken gives a great turn to as uh, Frank Abagnale Sr., DiCaprio's dad. The story follows their years-long cat-and-mouse game in which Frank fakes his way as an airline pilot, a doctor, and a lawyer, forging bad checks along the way, and, you know, Hanks is on his trail 
fail the whole time. By the end, all these guys really have in the world is each other, especially on Leo's side of the ledger. There's probably a deep, dark version of this movie that could be made, but Spielberg opts for more fun and entertaining. Not that there aren't heavier dramatic moments in it, but the story is, you know, kind of so bananas that he just correctly takes attack of making the movie a little bit lighter. Somehow, you end up rooting for both of these guys. You want Leo to escape, but you also want Hanks to catch him. It's like that old Seinfeld bit where if you're watching a nature documentary about gazelles, you root for the gazelle to outrun the lion. But if you're watching a documentary about lions, then you root for the lion to catch the gazelle. And for all you know, you're watching the same footage in both shows. So it's that sort of a thing. I rewatched Catch Me If You Can recently and reminded was just how good it was. I mean, if you're looking for something for everyone, this is definitely one of those. I watch it with my girlfriend and her children, and they range in age from uh, 8 to 16. And every single one of us really, really enjoyed this one. I'd say Catch Me If You Can is one of Spielberg's best people pleasers, certainly of the last 20 years. When we come back, we'll delve deeper into the list. We're going to move into the 90s and then, of course, his much vaunted 80s work. And, of course, we'll end somewhere in the 70s with something kind of toothy if you get my drift. I think you know what I'm talking about. And later in the show, I want to talk about a new uh, HBO miniseries that's also on Craving Canada and another long-running series of movies that I've been trying to catch up on. All that and much more coming up as we continue on The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff Braun. Brett McGarry will be back next week. And today I'm looking at the top 10 Steven Spielberg movies of all time as we celebrate his triumphant West Side Story, which is out in theaters now. I highly recommend it. We're counting them down. We've done uh, gone through the first few. I'm going backwards chronologically. So we already talked about Bridge of Spies and Munich and Catch Me If You Can, which is a lot of fun. And now we've got a couple that are much more serious than Catch Me If you can. In 1998, Steven Spielberg reinvented the war movie with Saving Private Ryan. Move your men off the beach! Eight men will risk their lives. It's a tough assignment. That's why you got it. To save one. I don't know anything about Ryan, but if finding him, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then that's my mission. Tom Hanks, Edward Burns, Tom Sizemore, Matt Damon, in a film by Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan. This was his first collaboration with Tom Hanks, and since we are working backwards through time, this will be the last appearance of Tom Hanks on my list. It's hard to tell what feat is more impressive when it comes to Saving Private Ryan, the filmmaking itself, or the fact that this movie helped bring these World War II veterans back into the spotlight, leading many of them to open up about the horrors of war that they'd experienced half a century earlier, and opening our eyes to the hell that they all really went through. The cultural impact in both those ways is just undeniable, and it came at a time in Spielberg's career when you wouldn't really think that he'd have found anything really new to show us. As for the filmmaking, the big takeaway, and rightly so, is that amazing opening sequence as Hanks' Captain Miller and his men storm the beach at Normandy and how many lives are so easily lost on D-Day. The doors on the boats open and it's just 20 minutes of mayhem and carnage. The sequence is filled with lasting images like the guy who has his arm blown off and then he bends down to pick it up or the guy who feels a bullet hit his helmet 
and then takes his helmet off to look at it, only, of course, then to get shot in the head. After that, it gets to be a bit of a little more of a typical war movie, but again, the action was filmed in a gritty style that was never really done before, and it quickly became the template for all war movies since then. Spielberg wins Best Director at the Oscars. The movie, though, loses Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love. That upsets a lot of people to this day, but... I really love Shakespeare and Love, so I'm sort of good with it. And they did definitely get it right, though, by giving Spielberg the best director trophy. He earned that one for sure. Of course, that was his second Oscar win, his first coming from the next movie on the list, 1993's Schindler's List. From director Steven Spielberg. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Schindler's List. Winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director Steven Spielberg. How many? 600. More. They say you are good. Who says that? Everyone. The list is life. Schindler's List. Steven Spielberg's magnum opus about the Holocaust is simply put, one of the best movies ever made. It's also one of the hardest movies to watch because it is among the saddest chapters in modern human history. And of course, it was a huge change in direction from what we had come to expect from Spielberg. He was supposed to be the fun blockbuster guy and then made an almost unbearably sad and extraordinarily realistic film about the evils of man. But of course, the film is more so about the good of man as Liam Neeson's Oscar Schindler uses his connections with high ranking Nazis to save the lives of 1,100 Jews that would have otherwise been destined for a concentration camp. I, I think I've seen this movie four times or so. I try to watch it every seven to ten years, but I admit it has been a long time, probably more than ten years now since I've last seen it. I should probably watch it again. Again, though, it's one of those movies where you, you know, quote unquote, have to be in the mood for it and you have to, it's long, it's over three hours. You got to set away a block of time because you don't want to watch it in chunks. You want to immerse yourself in this story and really feel it. It's so powerful. And again, it's just one of the best movies ever made. 1993, probably the best overall year for Spielberg's career because not only did he win the Oscar for Schindler's List, he also changed movies forever thanks to some computer generated dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Universal Pictures presents a Steven Spielberg film. Jurassic Park rated PG-13 starts Friday, June 11th. Seriously, though, think about it for a second. Jurassic Park and Schindler's List came out the same year. That is an astonishing feat. Uh, while Schindler is one of the most important films ever made, Jurassic Park is one of the most fun movies ever made. Of all his movies, it is the one that I get most excited to rewatch. If I see it on a cable while I'm flipping by, I watch it, even with the streaming services. If I'm scrolling through and it pops up, and it pops up a lot, I will often click on it. I honestly probably watch Jurassic Park three or four times a year. It's based on the Michael Crichton novel, a beautifully uh, simple story. Millionaire scientist figures out how to bring dinosaurs back to life on a remote island. He tries to contain them, but they get loose, run amok, and people get eaten. It's all terribly exciting. It was the first major use of computer-generated imagery, which of course quickly became one of the biggest special effects tools in Hollywood's pocket. And my God, it's almost 30 years later, and the T-Rex attack still stands up. It looks amazing. Some of the other dinosaurs, like the big brontosaurus thing we see first, that looks pretty fake now, but still, 
Impressive feat. Spielberg, of course, went on to make a sequel, The Lost World, which I find is one of the most divisive sequels of all time. A lot of people just drag it mercilessly, but I actually really like that movie. No, it's not as good as the first movie, but it is miles ahead of any of the other sequels, and uh, notably that Spielberg didn't make any of those other sequels. The one he did make was the good one. Jurassic Park, though, not the first time Spielberg dabbled in sequels. No, sir. In the 80s, he directed one of the finest film trilogies of all time. On Wednesday, May 24th, Paramount Pictures invites you to have the adventure of your life. Dad! Ah, Dad! Ah! Keeping up with the Joneses. Are you crazy? Don't go between them! Go between them! Are you crazy? Harrison Ford, Sean Connery. You call this archaeology? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, rated PG-13. Starts Wednesday, May 24th at theaters everywhere. I'm lumping all the Indiana Jones movies together because honestly, I'm tired of ranking them. Most people say Raiders of the Lost Ark is best. Me and a few others probably prefer Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and surely there must be a couple of people out there who prefer the Temple of Doom. I will say my favorite scene in all of these movies is the mining cart chase in Temple of Doom. I think that's just terrifically exciting. It looks like a roller coaster ride, for goodness sakes. Uh, the series was born out of Spielberg's friend and, of course, producer of the trilogy, George Lucas's affinity for old serials that he used to watch as a kid and Harrison Ford as Indy is perfectly cast it's that all too rare matchup of actor to character that is just perfect and to think that it was almost Tom Selleck who played Indy they're just fun movies they're timeless classics my girlfriend's sons love these movies and I don't know if when I was a kid you could have found movies that came out 25 years earlier before I was born that I would have really enjoyed. So that's saying something. Now, I'm only counting the indie movies from the 80s. The fourth movie, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull from 2008, whenever it was, yeah, not even sure how to deal with that one. It is so far removed from the others, it feels vastly different, and it's just not that good. An ill-advised move on the part of everyone involved. A fifth one is being shot right now, although Spielberg is not directing. I don't even know what to think of that. Uh, they should have stopped at three. They would have gone down with an all-time trilogy. It would have been a beautiful thing. But this fourth one and now this fifth one are sort of going to spoil it, just like Die Hard's 4 and 5 spoiled that trilogy. Whatever. A movie that never got a sequel, although they did reportedly start getting a script going at one point, is the biggest movie of my childhood from 1982. It's E.T., The Extraterrestrial. One of the most beloved movies of all time. E.T. Phone home. Oh, God! Hell yeah. E.T. is a masterpiece. Only little kids can see. Give me a break. I'll be right here. E.T. is the first movie I remember seeing, certainly the first one in a theater, and in the days before VHS was common, you could actually see this movie in a lot of weird places, it seemed like. I remember as a kid in small-town Manitoba, they would show it at the community center on special occasions, like during the annual town festival, stuff like that. I wonder, honestly, if the town bought a copy of the movie on reels. That wouldn't surprise me. It was that big of a deal, and... 
1982 and for the next few years amongst the kids in the world. This was the first family film that Spielberg had made, and he would go on to include kids in his movies a lot, knowing that you know kids in the audience would have somebody to identify with on screen. He's pretty smart like that. Henry Thomas as Elliot is one of the all-time great kid performances, and of course his sister Gertie was played by Drew Barrymore in her first role. Not a bad kid performance there either. E.T. is about an alien who gets left behind on Earth, is found by a young boy. They become best friends as E.T. attempts to phone home and get picked up by his uh, alien brethren. And by modern standards, it's a pretty wild movie. I have a friend who showed it to his kids a few years ago, and he was worried that they were forever traumatized because E.T. traffics in some very real and heavy emotions for kids in the ways of fear and sadness, mostly having to do with E.T.'s apparent death two-thirds of the way through the movie. But if you can get past that, it's a magical ride, and every kid who saw it dreamed of flying their bicycles like that. I know I sure did. E.T. wasn't Steven Spielberg's first alien movie, though. That goes to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The experience of an ordinary man shared by people from all over the world drawn to a single spot by a compulsion they don't understand to witness the most dramatic event in the history of the human race. And when the communication begins, it is fantastic. Close encounters of the third kind. This one's more about what would really happen if friendly aliens landed on Earth, and it's about, you know, Richard Dreyfuss's obsession with something he can't understand but must follow. Honestly, I like this movie. I can appreciate the special effects for its time, but I've only really included it here because people always say it's one of his best. I've seen it a few times, including the re-release in theaters two years ago, I think it was, but I don't recall a lot of specifics. There's Dreyfus playing with his mashed potatoes, crazy synth music, slender aliens... Yeah, there you go. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. When we come back, we'll get the number one Steven Spielberg movie of all time. Plus, I want to tell you about a new miniseries that's just started on HBO and Crave. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff Braun. Brett McGarry is off this week. He will be back next week, though. And we're counting down the top ten Steven Spielberg movies to help celebrate the release this weekend of his latest movie, his best movie in probably 15 years, West Side Story. I gave it four and a half couch cushions out of five. We've done... Nine of the top ten Steven Spielberg movies of all time. And, of course, as you will have no doubt guessed by now, here is number one. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. It is as if God created the devil and gave him... Jaws. Jaws is credited with being the first summer blockbuster, and rightly so. Again, show this one to the kids, ages 8 to 16. We made the little ones look away at some of the gorier bits, but everyone really liked it. And one of my girlfriend's daughters who complained that Jurassic Park had too much action, which I still haven't recovered from, she really liked it, so I guess Jaws doesn't have too much action for those who don't really like action. It does have a great sense of adventure, though, and a sense of dread, especially in that first half on land where they build up the fear 
cheer that this shark is inspiring across Amity Island. And then in the second half, they're out at sea with Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw hunting the great white shark. Yeah, the shark looks a little fake at times, but it looks pretty legit scary at other times. And if you've been in the ocean, You've thought about Jaws guaranteed. Not only is it Spielberg's best movie, it's also one of the best movies of all time, period. So there you go. We've done the top 10 Steven Spielberg movies of all time, ending with Jaws at number one. Now, turning to television, there's a very curious new miniseries out on HBO and Crave. It's called Landscapers. Yesterday morning, two bodies were found buried in the back garden of a house in Mansfield. My husband and I got ourselves into a bit of a pickle. It might sound bad, but it's not what it seems. I can see you're confused, Susan. Can we go back to the beginning? You do want us to know the truth, don't you? Landscaper stars Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis as a married couple who have gotten themselves in a very strange heap of trouble. Now, I should say that it's going to sound like these are spoilers, but they're not. Everything is immediately laid out in the opening moments of the first episode. It seems this couple has killed her parents and buried them in the garden and then fled the country for 15 years and then they return after they run out of money. It seems they had gotten away clean with murder and if they hadn't brought it up on their own, which was entirely unprompted, that they'd still be on the loose today. It's a true story and the hook of the show is obviously not any mystery or anything as it is all put out there immediately, but it seems that it's going to be examining how odd these people are and their relationship with each other and the rest of the world and uh, the legal web that they go through after they admit to what has happened. Olivia Coleman, of course, simply one of the best actors on the planet. She's proven time and again in movies and TV the past several years that she can play just about anything, comedy, drama, anything in between. Haven't seen her in an action movie yet, but I bet she could do it if she had to. She plays Susan, the doting wife who adores old Hollywood and has quite a memorabilia collection of autographed photos and things. And then when she's feeling stressed, she escapes into this fantasy world where her husband looks like Gary Cooper in High Noon. She stops worrying about the things that she should probably continue to worry about. David Thewlis has always been an interesting actor with an interesting look, and he can play creeps and weirdos with the best of them. It's He's exceptional at it. And some of that's on on display here, his character Chris is less creepy, more of a weirdo. Uh, that's what's so odd about this pair is that they seem like very harmless people. You wouldn't notice them on the street if you walked by them. The show begins with them in France, 15 years after the killing of her parents back in England. They're living on their last remaining dollars. Chris cannot find work because he doesn't really speak French. No word on why they went to France, but again, no one suspected them of a crime. No one even knew the victims were dead. They could have stayed home the whole time. But he calls a family member to ask for money. He makes a weird quasi-confession, and then the police are soon involved. We meet some of the cops. The main guy is this F-bomb machine. Certainly worth a look. Again, the first episode's our first episode, rather, of Landscapers is available now on HBO and Crave with new episodes on Monday nights. And that's all the time we have this week. I'm Jeff Braun. Burton McGarry will be back in the fold next week. And if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.